following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you for joining in, and uh, we're going to be looking this morning in Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. This really, in some ways, begins a new section. It actually ends uh, the previous section we looked at uh, for the past few weeks and starts um, a new section that really focuses on the passion, uh, that is, on on the the, the cross and the death of Jesus. Um, And it's it's, it's kind of a hinge. Verses 1 to 3 actually are are a hinge that connects these two sections together. So let's read uh, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Uh, So Jesus has been uh, talking up to this point about uh, the question, answering the question of of, uh, when he would return. Uh, but now we uh, shift gears and we start looking at when Jesus will actually leave. And, and uh, uh, the cross is drawing very near. And so uh, Jesus uh, links this together when he says when, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he, he, he says to his disciples, you know that the Passover is near. Uh, and in this account, we actually see four different people or groups uh, who all have different ideas about Jesus uh, in terms of who he is and what his mission is. And uh, we see that in this account, out of the four people or groups, all but one gets it wrong. And uh, what uh, we, would, we would hope is that the disciples actually get it right. And we would hope that the disciples would be the group that actually, after spending three years with Jesus, that they would know who he is and they would have a clear idea and picture of what Jesus' mission and purpose was. But actually, we see that once again, the disciples actually actually miss it and misunderstand uh, who Jesus is. And it's actually the woman who anoints him who, who really gets it right. Um, and as a result of their lack of understanding, 
uh, we see that the disciples really uh, have their priorities about what's important turned upside down, and Jesus has to correct them. And, you know, priorities are important. And uh, we, we know that uh, our own life uh, is only going to work if our priorities are straight. I don't know if you have this experience, but I, I, uh, I'm super distracted by my cell phone. Uh, but sometimes I need it, and sometimes it provides an important tool and I'll remember, oh, I need to message so-and-so, or I need to check some email, and I'll get on my phone, and I'll open it up, and uh, I'll get distracted by 15 other things. And I'll close my phone and put it away after wasting 15 minutes on uh, things that were not why I got on there, right? And I was like, oh, I forgot why I got on there in the first place, right? Because I lose focus of the priority. Uh, and uh, certainly that's a, a waste of time, but... Uh, if, if our whole life is centered around the wrong priorities, um, we will waste our life. And that's really what is happening here with the disciples. And they really uh, are at risk of, of having their life out of sync with God's priorities because of their failure to understand who Jesus is. And, and so the question comes for us, if they got it wrong, if it's possible for the disciples to have their understanding of Jesus and their understanding of his priorities so out of whack, after spending three years with him personally, uh, is it possible for us to have the wrong priorities and the wrong understanding of Jesus? I think it certainly is. And it is uh, it's possible that we are too focused on things that are not really that important, and we are missing the things that are actually most important. Uh, so how do we make sure that we are more like the woman who got it right and not like the disciples who on this day were getting it wrong? Uh, So let's see if we can uh, unpack some of the important principles in this story. Uh, And and, and as I said, Jesus uh, starts off here by announcing his death. Uh, This is not the first time he's done that. This is actually uh, one of several times when Jesus has been preparing his disciples, announcing his upcoming death. And he's already, in fact, announced that not only is he going to die in Jerusalem, but that he would die by crucifixion, that he would be handed over to the uh, chief priests and elders and the leaders of, uh, from Rome, and that they would execute him by crucifixion. And so Jesus reminds them again of that very same thing. He says, uh, when he had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and at that time the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, or handed over, betrayed to be crucified. A couple of quick observations here. One is uh, this this. Uh, in our most Bibles, it starts the mark of a new chapter, and it looks like it's the beginning of a new section, and in many ways it is. But actually, uh, Matthew probably intended this to be an, a conclusion for all that uh, Jesus taught in, in the last discourse, in uh, talking about his return. Because he says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is about to be crucified. And uh, the grand climax of this previous section, if you've been listening and watching along, you know that the grand climax was this picture, this vision of Jesus coming back as the great judge over all creation, over all things and over all time, and that he will judge every human being as the great supreme judge who has right to decide the eternal destinies, uh, eternal destinies of every human being. Uh, and what a contrast it is to see Jesus, the great king, uh, sitting on the throne of judgment, 
now talking about himself as the same son of man who is about to be crucified. Uh, What an astonishing uh, contrast between the judge who judges all things, now giving himself to come under the judgment and condemnation of his enemies. And so Jesus clearly knows what's coming, and he knows uh, what he is walking into, and he walks into it willingly. Jesus is not running away from the cross. He is moving toward the cross, and he knows it's coming, and he knows exactly why. Right? It is because this is the Father's plan from before the beginning of time. And also because of his love for us. Ephesians 5.2 puts it this way. Uh, Paul says, Walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Jesus uh, is coming to lay down his life for us, to give himself up as a sacrifice for us. Um, it's also important to see that, uh, uh, that, that we have the right understanding of his death. And Jesus frames or uh, places, links, uh, connects his death, his crucifixion, with Passover. Uh, it is Jesus' timing, and it is also God the Father's timing. It is not a coincidence or an accident that Jesus happens to be in Jerusalem on Passover, and that this is the time that marks the crucifixion. Uh, uh, And there's a lot of debate over the exact timing. He says here, uh, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And a lot of theologians debate, was that Wednesday, was it a Thursday, was it a Friday? Uh, That really doesn't matter, actually. What matters is that, uh, that it was the Passover season. That Jesus links his crucifixion to the Passover and, and as we see, uh, Jesus talks about his, his crucifixion, but he, he doesn't really sit down and explain it. And this, as we will see later, is a problem for the disciples. Uh, but he expects us to understand uh, and to interpret the crucifixion in the context of Passover. And, in, and as we understand what Passover was about, we will understand why Jesus died. And we're not going to talk about it this week because that really is the topic or the theme for next Sunday. Uh, but what's important to see is that it's crucial uh, for the disciples. Their, their lack of understanding uh, is, is a lack of understanding of, of uh, the crucifixion in the context or setting of Passover and its meaning. And so uh, all, the, all the characters in this account really miss the point and have a wrong understanding of Jesus except for the woman, and actually I would say that even the woman probably doesn't really fully understand who Jesus is, but she gets one thing right anyway. So let me just take a minute and look at these four perspectives. Like how do these four different people or groups see Jesus? How do they understand him? Well, the first group we look at is the chief priests and the elders of the people. Uh, and they see Jesus, their perspective or their view of Jesus is that he is a threat, Right? Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together. And by the word, the word, by the way, the word plotted there is not a, a favorable word. It wasn't like it was a strategic plan for the benefit of everybody. It was, it was a plotting. It was a scheming and conniving. It was something done in secret, right? Uh, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. Uh, or uh, possibly by, by deceit or by trickery and kill him. Uh, but they said, but not during the, the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And we see here that the only concern, the only perspective 
of, of these leaders of Israel is that Jesus is, is a threat to national security. Uh, Jesus is at risk of stirring up the crowds against Rome, and they know that if that happens, Rome will come down on them, and uh, it will be the end, uh, as actually happened in, in AD 70. And so they, uh, they fear Jesus as a threat. They don't see him as the Son of God. And in their actions, they prove that they, they are of the world. They are consumed only with the affairs of this world, uh, and they have very little interest in the true kingdom of God. Uh, so they see, simply see Jesus as a threat who must be stopped. Uh, but what's interesting and a bit ironic in, in all this is we also see God's sovereignty. God just, uh, Jesus just said, uh, you know that the Passover is in two days, and that's the time when I am going to be crucified, at the peak of the Passover festival. But as the leaders plot how to kill Jesus, they say, uh, we need to get rid of him. We have got to kill him. But we can't do it. We cannot do it at the peak of the Passover season because that's going to cause an uproar with the crowd. Uh, but, but clearly, God knew what was going to happen. And God unfolds his sovereign plan in spite of the confusion and uh, lack of cooperation of the leaders. And we see here that, that God is working even through his enemies even through these evil, worldly, godless men who care nothing for the kingdom of God, God's working through their plotting, working through their planning, and even overcoming uh, their plan so that Jesus dies at the exact moment and time God intended uh, from his plan from before the beginning of the world. And it's a good reminder to us that we, never need, we, we need to never fear uh, enemies, right? We never need to worry about evil or those in the world who would, who who are trying uh, to stop the spread of the gospel, who are trying to stop your work and your ministry. Even the spiritual forces of Satan and the demons, who may be coming against you and trying to prevent the gospel and the work of God going forward. This is a great reminder that God can work even through His enemies, and oftentimes does work even through His enemies to fulfill his plan. God is sovereign over everything, even the forces that are against us. I would say God is sovereign even over immigration, right? Like there's nothing that can prevent God from accomplishing his plan in your life. Uh, and so we can trust in his sovereign care and leading in our life. So that's the first group. Second group uh, is a lady, not a group, it's a person who dearly loved Jesus. Uh, she saw Jesus as one who was dearly loved to her, one who, in whom she had deep affection. Uh, the woman at Bethany, verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. All right, so this woman comes, uh, and, and uh, they're in Bethany, very near Jerusalem. It's probably in the evening after Jesus has been teaching all day. And Simon the leper invites Jesus and probably a large crowd of people uh, into his home um, uh, to have this uh, dinner with Jesus. And uh, in comes uh, this woman with an act of, of deep love and really extravagant affection. But she comes in with this very expensive vase, uh, or jar of, of perfume, uh, and very expensive. Luke and other Gospels tell us that it was worth about a year's wages. 
So just imagine, imagine this is a gift kind of on the scale of like a brand new car, or maybe in her day a brand new four-door chariot, right? Uh, four-horse chariot. Um, it's an expensive, extravagant gift, uh, and uh, really quite over the top. Um, and, and we know that uh, this alabaster flask, this perfume uh, that was so expensive, it wasn't the kind of perfume that ladies would put on every morning before they go out, right? This is kind of a one-off kind of thing. And they've actually found a number of these, uh, these vases in tombs in Israel. And it, uh, to use it, it required breaking the, the top off of the, the jar. It wasn't resealable. And once you opened it, the, the, the fragrance would, would disappear quite quickly. So you used it one time. You broke the top off and you poured it out. Uh, and it, and it, was, it was done, right? So here goes a whole year's of wages in one single moment, one second of use. Right? So this wasn't something she could use every day. Uh, and, and oftentimes, because of its great value and because it had to be used all at once, it was used for a burial. And uh, when somebody very dear to you died, a way to show uh, your love and, and, uh, uh, and, and to honor them in their death would be to take this very expensive ointment and pour it as you prepare their body uh, to be uh, sealed away in the tomb. And they've actually found a number of these, quite a number, large number of these jars in tombs in, in Israel. So they know that's how they were used, right? Um, but of course, Jesus isn't dead yet. Uh, and, and it really is kind of an awkward moment, right? Uh, this woman comes in who really was not an invited guest and she comes into this room where they're all eating and uh, because it was a Passover dinner, they would actually kind of lay on the floor. They would recline. They would actually lay on the floor. And that was part of Passover celebration, actually. And she comes up and she breaks this jar and she pours this very expensive and probably very smelly uh, uh, perfume, ointment, on Jesus' head. Um, and, and clearly her, her act is an act of great devotion and affection. Right, she is doing it because she uh, deeply values Jesus, and she wants to show her love and affection for him in, in the most profound, extravagant way she can think of. And it's by it's by uh, pouring out what may be for her her most valuable uh, possession, her most valuable and prized treasure. Um, and. Uh, Matthew doesn't give the reason for it. He doesn't explain her motives. Uh, but Luke gives us some insight. Um, in Luke 7.47, Luke writes, Therefore, uh, this is Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, her sins, that is this woman, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven, uh, little loves little. Uh, and not to go into the whole context in Luke, but Jesus definitely says that, look, she, she's done this out of her great love, because she's been forgiven much. And because she's been forgiven much, she loves much. Now, in fairness, uh, there, there's some confusion, and it seems like there were at least two instances uh, where Jesus was anointed. Uh, and without going to all the details, we're not sure if the one in Luke is the same as this one or not. Uh, but I think it, it, it doesn't matter. The point is that she clearly was motivated out of her love for Christ. Right? She did this because she loved Jesus. Um, uh, and Jesus takes her act, her deed, and for Matthew, Matthew doesn't really focus so much on the woman's love and devotion because Matthew focuses on its greater meaning. Uh, and we don't know if the woman actually knew that she was preparing for Jesus' burial, 
Uh, Jesus had just told the disciples, look, the Passover is coming, and in two days I'm going to be crucified. Uh, but we don't know that that woman heard that, like that she was around. Maybe she did, and maybe she did believe that Jesus was about to die, and she was doing it to prepare for his burial. Perhaps not. We don't know. But Jesus certainly understood it and gave it that meaning. Right? Jesus interpreted her act uh, and gave it uh, this great and beautiful meaning. And I love that Jesus says, why do you bother her? Why are you harassing this poor lady? Right? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And what made it beautiful was not just her expression of love, not just that she was devoted to Christ and she wanted to honor Christ perhaps as Messiah or as the coming king. Uh, but what gave it its greatest meaning, what gave it a beauty, was in the context of Jesus' soon coming death. Right? That Jesus was about to be crucified and he was about to be buried uh, and that he was about to give up his life. And Jesus said, whether she realizes it or not, she has done this in preparation for my burial. And that gives it great weight and meaning and purpose. And that's what, Jesus, uh, that's what Matthew really wants us to focus on. Right? So, so uh, he doesn't really make a big deal of her gift, but he does make a big deal of what meaning it had to Jesus. Uh, more than just pure affection, uh, it was marking and honoring Jesus in his soon coming death. Um, then we come to the third group. The third group was, of course, the disciples. And the disciples, when they saw this, uh, Scripture tells us that when they saw her pour out this expensive gift, they were indignant. They were indignant. Right? Uh, indignant means to be angry at something that is unjust or wrong. And their, their words were basically, look, this is a waste of money, right? And it's interesting uh, that by saying that it's a waste of money, what they're really saying is, why are you wasting something so precious on Jesus? <laughs> uh, that's really what they're saying. They're saying, look, Jesus is not worth such an expensive gift. But that's what they're saying. Um, uh, and, and they said, look, you know, if you, want to help, if you want to do something really meaningful with your gift, let's sell it and give it to the poor. That would be much more needed. That would be much more important. Right? And so we see here that uh, the disciples have uh, their priorities all wrong. Right? They say, look, the, 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 the poor are important. Ministering and helping the poor, that's worth it. Jesus, on the other hand, is not worth it. And it's a sign that the disciples still really haven't grasped the truth and the reality that Jesus is about to die, right? Because it's, it's not that the disciples were heartless, right? Like if they had really believed Jesus was going to die uh, in, in, a day, in a day or two, uh, they would perhaps have had more understanding. So the problem is not that they're heartless, it's that they're clueless, right? They still have not grasped uh, that Jesus is really going to die, that he is really going to be nailed on a cross and he's going to leave them. And so because of that, their, their, their priorities, their idea of what's really important is turned upside down. And once again, not for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has to correct them for their uh, wrong priorities, their wrong values, and their wrong understanding. And of course, Jesus is not saying here that they shouldn't help the poor. 
He's not saying, uh, look, the poor don't matter. No, he says, look, the, you always have the poor with you. You will always have the opportunity, and you actually also will have the duty and the obligation to care for the poor and to help them. He's not saying that that's not important. But what he is saying is that there's something more important. There's something more foundational and more essential than helping the poor. And at Passover, it was a tradition to, to give alms to the poor. And, and Jesus is not discounting that. But he's saying, look, uh, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, my death, my soon and imminent death is significantly more crucial, more important, and should have more of a place in your thought. Right? Uh, it is not a waste to put it on Jesus if you understand its purpose. But they were missing the point, and they were missing uh, the truth of who Jesus was, and they were missing uh, the, the reality of why he came. They, they didn't understand that the cross was ultimately Jesus' mission. Instead, they, they, they saw Jesus only as a leader and a teacher. They didn't really see Jesus as Savior. Right? And there's a big difference between Jesus being a leader and king and being their Savior. Uh, uh, a king needs a throne. Uh, Jesus will teach them that a savior needs a cross, right? And they, they 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 looked to Jesus as their Messiah, as a as a king who would set things right, who would restore the kingdom of David. But they didn't really see why a cross was necessary, and that's why they I think they had such a hard time grasping the, uh, Jesus' upcoming death on the crucifixion. Right? They, they just couldn't understand why this was necessary, why Jesus would have to die, much less die this terrible death on a cross. They just couldn't make sense of it. And that was because they could not imagine that Jesus' death on the cross was vital for their very salvation. Right? That Jesus was the great and final Passover lamb. And again, we'll talk more about... Uh, the meaning of that uh, next week. Uh, but they were missing all of this, right? They were, they were missing it. And their failure to understand the crucial role, role of the cross resulted in them having values and priorities that were very far off from God's priorities. Um, la- last person we want to talk about so we, uh, is, of course, Judas. And uh, I, I include Judas here because it is such a contrast with the woman. But it is such a contrast. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Uh, what a contrast with the woman. Right? The woman uh, went to great expense, probably spending and giving up uh, her most valuable possession to show her love and affection for Jesus. Uh, But Judas, on the other hand, actually sells Jesus out and agrees to hand him over for what is really a relatively small amount of money. And of course, those 30 pieces of silver sounds impressive, uh, but actually it wasn't a lot of money. It was probably about a month's wages for a laborer, which granted is is not nothing, uh, but this is not going to change Judas's life. Like, he's not going to move to Malta and retire on the beach with this great sum of money. Right? It's a relatively small amount of money to sell out somebody you've just spent three years with. 
right? To, to sell out really uh, what had been the focus of his life for the last three years. Um, Deuteronomy tells us that 30 pieces of silver was the cost to redeem a slave. Right? So, so that's about what Jesus was worth to, to Judas, uh, a slave that he could easily sell out. Um, and so clearly Jesus was worth a great deal more to the woman, and the contrast here is stark. Uh, and, it, and it throws uh, what Judas did in even worse light, right, as we put these two pictures together. Uh, so, so what happened? What, how is it that Judas could, could sell out, could, could hand Jesus, uh, Jesus over to, uh, to his enemies for just 30 pieces of silver? What happened? What went wrong with Judas? Well, um, we, don't, we don't know exactly. As it doesn't go into a lot of detail. It just says that he did it. Um, but, but if we could uh, piece together uh, what may be his motives, I think it's this. Judas uh, came to the conclusion that, that Jesus was not who he thought he was. Right? Judas turns out to be somebody very different than what Judas needed him and wanted Jesus to be. And, and he was not okay with that. Right? Judas was not okay with the Jesus that was unfolding before him. Uh, Judas probably thought he was signing up for a Jesus who was a, a bold, radical Messiah, who was going to restore the kingdom, uh, overthrow Rome, and set up David's throne in Jerusalem. And increasingly, as, as uh, things unfold, uh, Judas begins to see that that's not going to happen. And it could be that actually Judas was the only one who really believed that Jesus was going to the cross. And he didn't like it, right? That was not the Jesus he wanted. That was not the Jesus he expected. And he did not like it. And so he became very disillusioned. And he, uh, he said, if that's not who Jesus is, I want nothing to do with it. And he chooses instead to profit, to get something out of the last three years, even if it's only... 30 pieces of silver. Um, and, and this is typical of so many people who uh, turn to Christ, right? Who, who start going to church, who seek God's help uh, with, with, uh, with one idea of who Jesus is. But as they get involved and as they begin to hear Scripture and, and learn and, and, and the truth of who Jesus un- unfolds to them, they discover that the Jesus of the Bible is not the Jesus they signed up for. And they don't like it. Uh, and the reality is this is true, uh, really not just of Judas, but it's true of, of all the disciples. Uh, Judas really wasn't that different from all the other 11 uh, who, who really didn't understand who Jesus was. Right? Ju- Judas wasn't unique in that he didn't understand fully who Jesus was. None of them did. Um, and, and when we come to Christ, it's true that we all at best have an incomplete picture of who God is and who Jesus is. In fact, it's probably not until we get to heaven and see him face to face that we really will understand fully who Jesus is. Uh, but the question is this, and the, the, deciding, the, the difference between Judas and the disciples was this. When it became clear who Jesus really was, how did they respond? Right? Uh, do we adjust our worldview and our expect expectations to match who God is and who Jesus is? Or do we become disillusioned and turn away from Christ because he is not 
what we want him to be, what we thought he was. Well, Judas clearly, um, uh, when, when those misconceptions and those misunderstandings started to clear away and he saw clearly who Jesus was, it was not okay. And he refused to change his thinking in his mind to align with the true Jesus. Instead, he chose to reject Jesus and turn him over to be killed. Um, so Romans 12, 2 puts it this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Right? As we come to know more and more who Jesus is, who God is, there will be things about God we do not like. There will be things about God that don't line up with our idea of uh, maybe the warm, fuzzy God that we thought he was. Uh, the question is, are we going to uh, allow God's word to change our thinking and to renew our minds? Or are we going to make Jesus who we want him to be, even if it's not the true Jesus? Or worse, to reject him altogether and turn our backs on him as Judas did. Right, so those are the four perspectives. Uh, and as we, as we kind of wrap things up, I just want to go through uh, some principles of how do we make sure we're not missing something. The disciples were missing something. Uh, Judas really was missing something, and he refused to uh, let the truth of who Jesus was fully impact his life. Um, I think maybe even the woman who anointed Jesus may not have really completely understood who Jesus was. They were all, at some level, missing something. So how do we make sure we get it right? How do we make sure uh, we've got the right priorities in life? So let's look at four, four things that will help us. Uh, and it really comes down to the priority of worship. And I think the main point of this passage is the, the crucial role uh, of worship uh, and the proper worship in understanding God and having the right priorities. Um, the failure to understand the crucial role of the cross in God's saving plan resulted in the disciples having their priorities turned upside down. It's only when we have the proper understanding of the cross and the meaning of Jesus' death, that we will arrange our life according to God's priorities. Uh, we are called to serve God. We are called to ministry. We are called to be disciple makers. But the greatest priority in ministry, the greatest priority in doing good, is, is to worship Jesus. Right? That has to be the first thing. And the most beautiful form of worship is that which honors Jesus in his death. All our other good works and all the rest of our serving and ministry must flow out of Christ-focused and cross-focused worship. So let's talk about those four things, uh, break them down a little bit real quick. First, we do need to have a new way of thinking. Uh, No one has the right idea naturally about who Jesus is. And so we need to transform our minds. We need to, to, to alter our thinking to conform to the true reality of who Jesus is. Uh, and that means digging into the Word uh, with the crucial help of the Holy Spirit to have our minds changed to really understand fully who Jesus is and why he came. To understand uh, Jesus' mission was the cross. Uh, That's the first step. And that's uh, what Judas and the disciples didn't do. 
Um, second thing, uh, we need to love Jesus with all our heart. Right? We need to love Jesus with all our heart. Uh, we don't know if the woman really knew what she was doing. We don't know if she really understand, understood uh, how near the cross was. Maybe she did. Uh, but regardless, uh, we know that she loved Jesus. Right? She loved Jesus uh, with such a love that she was willing to, to make a huge personal sacrifice to show that love towards him. And that's really the first uh, and, and core element of true worship. Right? Worship is not just singing songs. It's not just um, getting excited about God. It's ultimately uh, expressing our love to God from our, our heart. Um, and the truth is that we may not know everything about Jesus. We may not have the perfect theology. We may not have it all figured out. But we can love Jesus as a response to his love for us. Right? Uh, if it was the same woman that was in Luke, uh, she loved much because she was forgiven much. And as we experience God's love and grace in our life, that uh, should cause us to respond back to God with love. So we sing songs of praise to him because we love him above all. But then there's more. There, there is the third point. Uh, and the third point is this. The most beautiful form of worship is that which honors Jesus in his death. It's not just enough to love Jesus as a person, not just to love him as as uh, the one who came from God, as God's son, as, as a perfect example of, hum, of humanity, uh, as one who embodied the fullness of God in, in, in everything that he said and did. Although all those things are true. But ultimately, true worship must be uh, worshiping Jesus for his death. I love it. Jesus said, what she has done for me is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. There's nothing more beautiful than worship that remembers the cross, that remembers the ultimate price Jesus paid for us. Uh, maybe this woman could make uh, such an extravagant gift at such great expense uh, because she understood uh, what Jesus, uh, the cost of Jesus coming. Right? And certainly for us, as we understand the cost of Jesus laying down his life for us, it ought to motivate us to a whole new level of worship. And finally, um, there, there is the worship of serving. And some people might say, well, look, there's those people who just worship God all the time. Like, you know, they, like they just live to worship and they go to church. In fact, there's churches where they have like ongoing worship day and night. And it sounds like a great thing. It sounds like a beautiful thing. Uh, and, and lifting up, up God. Um, but in, sometimes, worship becomes so consuming that people never actually leave the worship site. Right? They, they just come and sing songs, and they, they're all about this worship experience, but they never go out and serve. They never go out and tell others the good news of Christ. They never care for the poor or care for the needy or those around them, because all they have time for is worship. Well, I would say that... The, if that is the case, they don't really understand what true worship is. And it really is possible to worship the experience of worship, right? To, to love worship itself, not the God who we worship. Uh, to, to love this experience of, of feeling 
joy and, and being with people who are happy. Uh, that is not true worship. In fact, I would say that worship that never uh, culminates, worship that never leads us to serve others and to show God's compassion for the poor is actually not worshiping God. It's, it's really a form of idolatry, of worshiping worship itself. Uh, true worship is not just singing a song. True worship is not just an experience. And by the way, uh, I think all of us would affirm that we miss that experience. Like We miss the joy of gathering together in this big empty room right now and praising God together. Like That experience is, is important. right? But that's actually not the highest form of worship. That's actually not the greatest and most uh, sincere expression of worship. Right? True worship, the greatest worship, uh, comes when it costs us something. Uh, as this woman illustrates, uh, worship is ultimately a very expensive offering. And, and her offering had great value because it, it cost her. Um, and, and the same is true for us. And of course we come and we, and I'm not talking just about giving our, our, our financial offerings. Uh, ultimately, the greatest gift that we have to give is our very life. Right? It is when we lay down our very life at God's feet that we are ultimately giving uh, the greatest and truest kind of worship. And so Romans 12.1 ex- expresses it well. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? It is your spiritual worship or some of the older translations actually call it the spiritual service of worship. And the word there is a word that uh, des- described the service of the priests in the temple, right, as they offered sacrifices and as they served in the temple. And it was both serving, and in serving it was also worship. Hence the, 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 the translation, the spiritual service of worship. Okay? Uh, our greatest worship to God is ministry. It is when we, out of, out of love and out of our devotion to Christ and out of our honoring of Jesus' death, we are moved to take the gospel to the world. And, and Jesus affirms that when he says, Look, I tell you that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And Jesus looks to the day when our worship will be that of proclaiming the gospel, of taking the good news of Jesus to the into the world. And everywhere it goes, right, the story is recounted in memory of her, but also in tribute to Christ. So the point is this, that, um, that worship is, is, is our great priority. Like, that should be the most important thing in our life. And honoring Jesus in his death is the, most, uh, is the highest calling of every believer. But out of that flows a heart of service towards others. Right? That we care for the poor, not just for the poor's sake, but out of our love for Jesus. And you see, that's what was missing with the disciples. Uh, they cared for the poor, but they cared for the poor for the wrong reason. They should have cared for the poor ultimately out of their love and devotion to Christ and out of his sacrificial death for them. Not just for the sake of the poor. Right? We should care about human trafficking but not just for the sake of victims. 
right? And unfortunately, too much uh, work done in that area is done uh, only caring for the victims. And that's not terrible, but it's not, it's not what, what God calls us to. What he calls us to is to love him most. And out of his, our love for him, out of our devotion to him, out of our worship to him and his death for us, we then care for victims of human trafficking and victims of abuse and the poor and the needy around us. Then our priorities will be fully lined up with God's heart and God's priorities. Uh, Then ministry becomes something that we do that is life-giving, not exhausting. And the truth is many people are burned out in ministry because they've got their priorities wrong. They think the most important thing is the poor or the needy or the trafficked. And they don't realize that the most important thing is Jesus. Uh, It is never a waste. It is never a waste to give your life to Christ. It was never a waste for that woman to pour out that expensive ointment on Jesus. Because Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come, and we just, uh, even now as we will be preparing our hearts for communion, uh, we come to honor your death. And Lord, we want want our worship to be very Christ-focused and and cross-centered. And not not just for uh, some selfish experience, but to experience the joy and wonder of the redemption and salvation we have through Jesus and through his saving work on the cross. And Lord, we just thank you for this beautiful picture of this woman who gave such an extraordinary gift of love. And Lord, may that be a a calling for us of pouring out our lives as a sweet, fragrant offering to you uh, in response to your great love for us, not trying to earn your favor or earn your love, but because of your very love, we would, we would respond with joyful worship and celebration of Jesus. And so, Lord, forgive us where sometimes we can let even ministry uh, take priority over our love for Christ. Our work and the important things we think we're doing, uh, even those things uh, can easily become idols uh, that become more important than Jesus. And certainly that was the case of, of the disciples. And Lord, we don't want to be like that. We want to be people who, who glorify you above all, who live to honor and worship you and honor you in your death above all. And that out of that, our life flows into service and ministry and caring for others. So Lord, help us. And even as we prepare, Lord, help us examine our hearts and see where we have our priorities out of out of alignment with your heart, uh, where we are not following your priorities and where we don't really understand fully who Jesus is. And Lord, where, where we discover things about you that, that we don't like, that don't fit our worldview, Lord, help us not be like Judas, uh, who, who rejects the true Jesus. Lord, help us instead to... Um, to have our minds changed, our thinking changed, so that we fall in line with the truth of who you are. That we would line up our whole life with the wonderful truth of Jesus and his mission. 
And so we, uh, we, we just want to reflect uh, for a moment on these things as we prepare to celebrate uh, Jesus' death and honor him through taking the Lord's uh, table together. And we ask this all in Jesus' precious name. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.